If you have a Bible, if I could encourage you to turn in it to the very end of Galatians chapter 2. And if you're using one of the few Bibles, Bible in the chair in front of you, want to turn to page 973, you'll be right there. Last week, uh, after the service, I was asked, or or you could maybe say I was challenged uh, about the message. In short, I was kind of asked, I was sort of inferred that there was something missing from what had been communicated, that there, there was something I should have said that, that wasn't said. Last week, we looked at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and we kind of zoomed in on the idea of how do you keep in step with the gospel? How do you walk in step with the good news of the Lord Jesus but when I was asked or, or challenged about that, it's, it's a little bit like, but you never told us what is the truth of the gospel. I mean, you said keep in step with it, but what is it that we're to keep in step with? So the thing that was missing was what is it I'm supposed to walk in step with? Now, Paul used the expression, the truth of the gospel, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 5, and in Galatians chapter 2, verse 14, but he never defined it. He just sort of used the term and moved on, which... Sometimes writers in Scripture do that. They'll say something and and move on. And so my response to the question was, well, I think that's kind of what the rest of Galatians wants to do for us is kind of tell us, hey, this is what the truth of the gospel is. And that was a a partial answer, but, you know, if you remember back in school, sometimes partial answers didn't get you all your grades. You know, didn't get full marks, so to speak. It wasn't the greatest answer. So let me give you a little better answer to that question, and that is, I think that's really where Paul goes next. In this next chunk, when we start from verse 15 through verse 21, the last chunk of Galatians 2, is I think Paul wants to lay out for us sort of four truths of the gospel, or four component truths that make up the truth of the gospel. In essence, saying, here are things that should shape our lives. If we're a follower of Jesus, and when we say a follower of Jesus, it's really important we probably define that very, very carefully. Okay, to be a follower of Jesus means you've turned from sin to God and you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior. That makes you a follower of Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you want to walk in step with the gospel. And these four truths, really, these four components are are meant to be, here's what you and I should walk in. Because if we walk in these, we're not going to distort the gospel. And if we walk in these, we're truly going to be people who love God. We're truly going to be people who then love other people and want other people to know about Jesus. So this morning, really, we're going to talk about four big truths that really kind of make up the truth of the gospel. So let's kind of jump in and say, what are the truths of the gospel? What's the gospel truth? Four things we're going to talk about. Truth number one would be this. We all need a Savior. Okay? Truth of the gospel, first one, we all need a Savior. Now, as we go from verse 14 to verse 15, in most English Bibles, it's a new paragraph. That's why we did verses 11 to 14, because that was a paragraph, and now we're kind of in the next paragraph. But in doing that, that doesn't mean that Paul really finished his conversation with Peter. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Most likely, verses 15 to 21 is Peter is still kind of thinking back or even referring to that conversation he had with Peter. But not in a way that that was a private conversation like they were over in the corner and he was just talking to Peter. No. The idea is these verses are meant for all of us. Okay? All of us need to hear this truth about the gospel. He wants all of us to understand it. And the truth is we all need a Savior. Okay? Verses 15 and the first part of verse 16 kind of starts the section. It says, 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Okay, if we're going to understand kind of where Paul's going, kind of where he's starting here in verse 15, we probably need to make some observations about these Jews that he's talking about. Now, when we say the Jews he's talking about, really he's talking about himself. He's talking about Peter because he says, we, okay, we are not. We're Jews by birth. He's saying, who are we? So some things we need to think about in terms of who he's talking about. Why does he mention them? Three major observations, okay? One would be, as a nation, the, the Jewish people, Israel, had been incredibly blessed by God. I mean, in so many different ways, God had kind of entered into their history. The Old Testament kind of tells us that, kind of these amazing stories of their experience was God showing up in dramatic ways. I mean, whether you think about Abraham and Sarah having Isaac, you know, a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman do not tend to produce new kids, but that's what happened. Or you think about the story of, of Joseph going from being a, a, first a slave, then a prisoner, and almost in the snap of a finger, all of a sudden becomes the second most powerful man in the world. That's an amazing thing. That was a part of their story. Or what about Moses in the Exodus? Or, or Joshua in the conquest? Or what was the favorite story of our, certainly our sons growing up? Every night, and we'd say, hey, do you want to read a Bible story? Yes. What was the Bible story they always wanted to read? David and Goliath. And the problem is they had it memorized, so I couldn't shorten it or change it in any way. They had it memorized. Okay, all these stories, look at this amazing thing. All these things got it done. That's a part of their history. Part of being Jewish by birth was that was a part of their family story. Okay, a second big observation about them, not only did they have that in their history and their experience, but they literally had been entrusted by God, okay, to receive the revelation of God and to steward the revelation of God. They received it. Now, part of what we're talking about is they, they were given like the Ten Commandments, okay, that's kind of a huge thing to be given and to be entrusted with, but they weren't only given the Ten Commandments, okay, they were given, and let me get my finger at the right spot here. They were given this much of the Bible. Okay, they were given the entire Old Testament. They were given 77.23% of the Bible. They were given it. It was, they were the first recipients. It was written in their native language. That's a huge thing. Third observation about them. Not only did they have this great history, not only did they receive the revelation of God, but they were also told through that revelation how to rightly worship God, how to rightly come into the presence of the one who is almighty and amazing and all-powerful and to worship him. That was all a part of their experience. They were all given that they were incredibly privileged, something amazing. And if you go back to verse 15, they had that, not like the Gentile sinners. The Gentile sinners didn't have any of that, but they did. But you and I need to note something here real quickly. See, if you've been amazingly privileged, they were. They had received all these things. It's very easy when you've been amazingly privileged, if you're not careful, to kind of get to a point to go, you know, I've been amazingly privileged. I have all these things. It must be because of me. Like, I'm privileged because I am so amazing. 
I deserve this. Okay, that can creep into our lives really easily. Going to verse 16, though. You kind of look at the beginning of verse 16. Verse 15 kind of makes them look impressive, but verse 16 starts and all of a sudden it's like, um, though Paul and Peter and the other Jews could have maybe felt snug about themselves, they, they were privileged. It doesn't look like being privileged really did much for them. They still had a problem. And again, we, so Peter and Paul both knew this. That just because they were privileged didn't mean that they could earn salvation. Didn't mean they had salvation with a snap of the fingers. There was a problem. There was an issue. Now, to me, that kind of raises a question. Because in verse 15, Paul sets up this contrast between Jews who are amazingly privileged and Gentile sinners. And yet in verse 16, he, he basically goes... <laughs> Look, our efforts aren't going to be enough. We're, we're like them. We're like Jewish. Like we're like Gentile sinners. Yeah, that's kind of what he's saying. We have a problem too, he's saying. So why does he raise that? Why does Paul set up a contrast between Jews and Gentiles and all of a sudden say there's really not that big of a difference? I think he does it because he wants to underline a truth of the gospel that none of us regardless of our status level or how privileged we are in life. None of us can earn salvation. Every single person you see needs a Savior. To borrow from the words of Romans 3.23, privileged and unprivileged people all fall short of the glory of God. Even if you've been given an enormous amount of stuff, and the truth is, living here in the United States, we are probably some of the most privileged people in the world. But that doesn't mean we earn salvation. That doesn't mean we can't earn it. It means every single one of us needs a Savior to be right with God. For us to be justified, for us to be reconciled to God, we need a Savior. That's a truth of the gospel. Now, having said that's the truth of the gospel, I want to just hit for a minute about some implications of that because if that's the truth of the gospel that we all need a Savior, how do we make sure that we kind of walk in that truth, that that truth really shapes us like it should? How do we walk according to that? Well, let me ask a question that I think maybe points to some implications. Okay, the question very simply is this. How do you view other people? Okay, if every single person needs the Savior, if we all need the Savior, when you look at other people, how do you look at them? If you and I look at other people and we look at them in a way that we discriminate against people to where we think we're better than other people, we are not walking according to the gospel. We're not walking in the truth of the gospel. If you and I think smug about ourselves or, or look down on other people, we think we're superior because of, because of our income or, or our education or our geographic location or our skin color or our first language or maybe because we think our sins aren't nearly as bad as their sins. That's not walking according to the truth of the gospel. 
every single person, if we're going to keep in step with the gospel, as we look at other people, we should look with other people with humbleness, with humility, realizing every single one of us needs a Savior. And if we've trusted Christ, that shouldn't get us to go, man, I'm privileged, I'm on top of everything now. No, if you've trusted Christ, if you've turned from sin to God and you trust the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that doesn't mean you're privileged. It means you've simply been reconciled by God. And that should drive you and I to be humble. And that should drive you and I to want to be people who encourage other people to follow Jesus. It doesn't make us better. Okay, truth of the gospel. All of us need a Savior. That's something that should mark us. And that literally should impact how you and I view other people. And in a world where there's a lot of racial tension and all those things, you know what makes that go away? Not by segregation, but by people walking according to the truth of the gospel. Truth number two. What else do I need to walk according to? Okay, the only way to be right with God. Okay, the only way to be right with God is to trust in Christ Jesus. Okay, truth of the gospel. The only way to be right with God is to trust in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 and and sort of the beginning of verse 16 sort of tells us, hey, we need a Savior. The rest of verse 16 is going to kind of tell us, here's how to connect with that Savior. If the one you need, how do you get connected to Him? Let me read all of verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Anybody notice there's some repetition there? Okay. Scholars will tell you verse 16 is emphatic repetition that Paul's trying to repeat again and again. He's trying to make the point so clear. Every Sunday during this series, I've, I've tried to make some reference to Martin Luther, the guy that put the 95 theses on the door. When Martin Luther talks about this verse, you've got you to understand some things about Martin Luther. He was an earthy guy. And I'm, a lot of times, some of the things I've said about him, I've kind of toned them down because, you know, they're supposed to be polite because we're in church. This one I'm not going to tone down. It's not really need to be toned down, but just to give you a sense, when he refers to this verse, he says, Paul's trying to beat it into our heads. Okay? He wants to make it so clear. Martin Luther's saying, Paul just wants to beat it into our heads. So if reading the verse didn't make it clear enough, we didn't get it beat into our heads, let me just repeat it one more time. The way to be justified, the way to be reconnected to the Savior is not through our efforts. It's not through anything we can do. It's not us seeing this list of rules and saying, I'm going to do all of those. That will never work. We can only be reconciled. We can only be justified. We can only be reconnected to the Savior by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Now, that can sound like an extreme statement. I mean, we live in a multi option kind of a world and to say there's only one way 
There's only one thing that, that sounds offensive, that you have to believe in the Lord Jesus. That's the only way to be connected to God. And you say, why did Paul write that? Well, as a church, we believe that it wasn't just human authors who wrote the Bible. We believe that the Holy Spirit moved in them. He inspired them. So why would the Holy Spirit be inspired to write that? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire them that way? Well, really quickly, I want to give you three reasons from the Old Testament why I think Paul was inspired to write this. Why he's telling us gospel truth you have to trust Christ. Okay? Reason number one would simply be this. Because we're not righteous. Okay? Very simply. Why is he saying this? Because on our own, we're not righteous. Okay? The end of verse 16 of Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, refers to Psalm chapter 40, 143. Okay? And specifically, it refers to Psalm 143, verse 2. Okay, see, we'll see the words that come on the screen here. Enter not into judgment with your servant. Why? For no one, no, it says, no one living is righteous before you. Please remember, the people that are speaking, okay, sort of the voice being spoken in Psalm 143 is of the privileged people. And they're saying, we're not righteous. Okay, on our own. Without God, without Jesus, on our own, none of us are righteous. Okay, that's an issue. That's a problem. Okay, reason number two. Why else would Paul be inspired to write this? Because our best efforts are polluted. Okay, literally, our best efforts are polluted. Okay, I mean, given who we are, I mean, if we're not righteous... We're kind of contaminated, so to speak. It's kind of like most of what we do then is, is going to have this lingering impact. It's going to be tainted. So in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, and this, to be honest here, I'll just let you know, the human, or the, the human editors are sanitizing this a little bit. Okay, when it says, we have all become like one who is unclean, they didn't sanitize that, but all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment okay now if you grew up like i did pollution supposed to be this terrible thing you think that's terrible this is actually a sanitized version of that okay what we do our efforts are really tainted so that's a problem third reason why paul was inspired to write this exclusive thing you've got to trust christ alone is that there's no one else to help Okay, we're not righteous and our efforts aren't good, but the third reason is because there's no one else to help. We have a significant problem on our hands and we don't have a solution. Really quick aside, here's where I think we get ourselves into huge trouble. I mentioned in Thursday Thoughts that I've just finished reading a book on the rivalry between President Kennedy and President Nixon. And it was fascinating for me to read, but one of the things that struck me was President Kennedy made a speech, which was a very moving speech, and, and I don't in any way, I'm not here to denigrate him, but he said something that I think is how most politicians think. And what he said was, in essence, we've created problems. We can solve problems. Now, that sounds great, and we want to vote for somebody who tells us they can solve problems. 
And I'd agree with half of what he said. We've created problems. But I honestly do not believe that politics is going to solve the problems that you and I face in the depths of our souls. Why? Because in Isaiah chapter 59, verses 15 and 16, God kind of shows up and speaks. Okay? It's jumping in the middle of verse 15. It says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. I mean, God's like, you've been given all these privileges. You know this truth, and yet you're not living it out. There's a problem here. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man and kind of wondered that there was no one to intercede. You know, a lot of times we're looking for somebody to be a savior, to solve problems. I think I understand why we do that, but there's no one. That doesn't mean we, don't, we do pray for our politicians, but realize if we expect them to solve every problem, that's not what they're going to be able to do. Why? Because there's really no one that can. But then his own righteous arm, God basically rolled up his right sleeve and he brought his own salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Because of who Jesus is, the righteous one, Isaiah is looking forward to that. The Lord Jesus did what none of us could do, what none of us are capable of, of solving a problem, of providing a rescue none of us could get. So Paul is saying, why do you trust him? Because you are desperate and there's nobody else who can save you. You can't save you, nobody else can. It's only the Lord Jesus. Truth of the gospel, we must trust Him. Now I want to go back for a second to to verse 16, to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And I kind of want to just underline something that I think is important. Okay, In the middle of the verse, Paul says, we also believed. Okay, So he's saying Peter and Paul, both of them, they also believed this. He's not saying there by believe that Peter and Paul kind of agreed on some theological statements about Jesus. Said, yeah, we believe those are good statements. Yeah, let's check those off. You know, this isn't like, if you haven't signed up yet to have your picture in the photo directory, please do that. And when you come, one of the things we're going to ask you to do is going to check your, you know, check your address. And, and if it's right, then we just have you put a little okay there. If it's not right, we have you write in what is right. This is not you saying okay to some things about Jesus. When it says we believe, what it's really saying is that Peter and Paul, in trusting themselves, they trusted themselves, they entrusted their lives, all of them, from that point forward to the Lord Jesus. They gave themselves to Him. They realized trusting Christ isn't, well, I did that and then I move on. No, I trust Christ and that marks the rest of my life. Maybe to make that point more clearly, just very quickly, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, well, how do you do that? I trusted Him. Walk like that. See, the truth of the gospel is the only way for me to be connected to the Savior is for me to trust in Christ, and that marks my life. That trusting Christ is something that goes with me from that point on truth of the gospel I desperately need. 
Let me quickly raise a couple of questions from that so that we understand. The truth of the gospel is I've got to trust Christ. How do I walk in that? Well, some questions that help us know, am I walking in that? Very simply this. Who or what, who or what are you trusting your life with? You know, is it Jesus? We sang. I don't know if we, you realize. We sang a few songs. We trust in Him alone, our Redeemer. He's the vision of our lives. Or are you trusting Jesus plus something? That's really what was happening in the church in Galatians. The gospel was being distorted because they were trying to add things alongside. Yes, trust Jesus, but there's no but after trusting Jesus. Or are you trusting something else? Okay? If I'm going to walk in the truth of the gospel, it's I'm walking, trusting Jesus. Another question. Okay, think about the gospel this way. The, the gospel, the, the salvation that we're offered in Christ is, is about us being rescued. It's about us being given security and comfort and healing, transformation. So where are you looking for security? I mean, where are you looking for your security? Where are you looking for comfort? I mean, life happens. We all need comfort. Where are you looking for it? And where are you going? There's issues in each of our souls. Where are you going to address those issues? I mean, are you ignoring them? That's an option. Where are you going for those? Where are you going with those? If you're going to walk in step with the gospel, I've got to walk trusting Jesus. He's my security. He's my comfort. He's the one I go to to address things in my soul. Truth number three. Actually, before we get to truth number three, real quick. Huge concern I have for my own life. Huge concern I have pastorally. It's really easy for you and me, really easy, to look to things other than Jesus. And not only is that easy to do, we don't even realize we're doing it. We live in a culture that offers us things, and we think we're pretty smart. So how could anything I'm doing be wrong? I stand here as one who has done so many stupid things, and I do not use the word stupid lightly without even realizing it. We need to pray, I believe, the words of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 again and again and again. God, I need to make sure I'm walking in step with the gospel. Truth number three. Jim commented earlier that I walk a lot. I was thinking I might need to stay right here so I don't drift from my notes. So tension for me because we've got to land this thing on time. Truth number three. Trusting in Jesus starts a radically new life. Gospel truth. Trusting in Jesus starts a radically new life. Okay, the people, the, the Jewish people that were interacting with Paul, that Paul was kind of writing because they were distorting the gospel, were having all kinds of issues with Paul. And part of the issue they were having with Paul at this point is, if I was to speak for them, they would say, Paul, 
this talking about, you know, trusting in Jesus by faith alone and not involving any kind of works or, or doing anything, Paul, we think that's dangerous. Because if you tell people they just have to trust Jesus to be saved, they don't have to do any works, Paul, they're going to start doing whatever they want. And, and that means if they're doing whatever they want, they're going to sin. And so basically, Paul, you are making Jesus a promoter of sin. That's kind of where they're coming from. That's sort of their argument. Say, well, how would Paul respond to that? Verse 17, this is Paul's response. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. I mean, to translate it, Paul's saying, you're wrong. And the reason you're wrong is you don't really understand. Paul says, you don't understand what happens in the life of a person when they trust the Lord Jesus. And so what he's going to do in the next chunk of verses is try to lay out, here's what happens. Okay, here's what happens when a person trusts Christ. Verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Real honest, verse 17 through like verse 20, when you listen, I listened online to a lecture of a leading New Testament scholar and he said, these verses are really hard. I'm like, great, I got to preach on them on Sunday. So it's a little bit hard. So what is he telling you? Well, we think what he's saying is, he's saying, if I go back to my old life, Okay, Paul's saying, I've trusted Christ, but if I want to go back to my old life, I want to go back to thinking, I've got to earn this. I've got to perform to, to make this happen. All that's going to prove, all that says, all that will communicate is, I've got an issue. I've got a problem that I'm a sinner. It's going to prove that I need the gospel in my life. I need it to work and move in me so I'm transformed. It doesn't say anything about Jesus. It just simply confirms I'm in desperate need. Okay, that's all that it proves at this point, that I'm a transgressor. Here's the thing I wish was not true. Believers sin. People who trust the Lord Jesus sin. We shouldn't, but we do. You say, well, why do we sin? Because there's still issues in us that need to be addressed, that need to be transformed. We're not always walking in essence in step with the gospel. Now, they might rebut and say, yeah, but the law can help. Well, here's the thing. Please very clearly understand me and hear me say this. The law is holy and righteous and good. It is all those things. But God did not design the law to empower us to live a moral life. It may declare what a good life looks like, but it doesn't empower it. So you say, well, what do I do then? How do I get around to living the way I really should live? How can I do this? Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What's Paul talking about? I think what Paul's saying is, I know that I can't be a good person. I can't live the way I should through the law. In fact, Paul's saying, I need to die to that. I need to die to this idea. I need to separate from myself this idea that I can do this. 
I can't. I need to die to that so that I can live with a different way of life, that I can have a different source in my life. Instead of the law being the thing that rules and governs me, I need God to do that. Now, it's kind of odd because in one verse, Paul's saying, I died to the law, I lived to God. Typically, I've done a number of funerals. People die. They're dead. So how can we live? How can we be dead and now talk about living? Verse 20, he's continuing on in his argument. He's saying, for I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay, Paul's jamming a lot in this verse. And the idea behind the verse basically is this. Big is that when you trust the Lord Jesus, your life is now connected to his life. Part of what that means is that when Jesus died, okay, we were crucified what? With Christ. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. When Jesus died, Paul died. <clears throat> That's how he can be dead to the law. The law, he's separated from that. He doesn't have to live that way anymore. He's died with Christ. That's a huge thing. You and I don't need to keep trying to perform to earn this thing. We died to that. But not only are we connected to Jesus' death, we're also connected to his resurrection. I mean, look at the middle of the verse. We don't live anymore alone. The life that I live by faith, I now live in trust in the Son of God. Before we get there, I got ahead of myself. And the life, whoops, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me trying to do life by myself. Life isn't about me trying to make it happen. It's about Christ living in me and through me. When you trust the Lord Jesus, you get a new source of life. You get, in a sense, new energy for life that's not dependent upon you. And part of how that works out really is the end of the verse. How do I live right now? I live by faith. I live by trusting in the Lord Jesus who gave himself for me. You see, life's not about my ego. It's not about my agenda. Paul is saying the life Christ gives us is a life of us trusting Jesus. Here's the point. Out of his love and sacrifice, Jesus is, offers us, gives us a completely new life. Life's no longer dependent upon what you and I can do. Life is about me trusting him as he works in me and works through me for his glory. Please hear this very clearly. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus, this verse is telling us that it is possible for you and I to live Jesus-like lives. Do you realize that? Because it's not me living. It's him living through me. It's not my effort. It's him working through me so that I can actually live a life that's like Jesus. I can live out the gospel. That's an amazing thing. Huge truth of the gospel. Jesus gives us radically new lives. Now let me ask you a couple of important, I think, implication questions. Because we say we have a radically different life and sometimes it's like, my life doesn't feel radically different. Sometimes my life just feels radically screwed up. 
You're saying I can live Jesus-like. Yes, I am. Not because I am. He is. But let me ask you some questions. Who are you submitting to in your life? Are you submitting to Jesus' leadership in your life? Part of the a practical expression of that is who are you, are you submitting to the help, direction, and leadership of other people sometimes? One of the m- mistakes that I see I have made so many times is God's saying, Lloyd, you have a problem. I'm the Lord God of heaven and earth. Here's the help you need. It's going to come in the package of this person. Are you going to receive it? In essence, are you going to submit to it? And my response has been no. Not necessarily outright, no, God! But I just ignore that help. Some of you have tried to be that help, and I have ignored you. That is a sin I repent of. And I pray I can stop repenting of it because I stopped doing it. Another question. Whose values or what values are driving your life? We sang words that you're the highest, you're the one I trust, but whose values are driving you? I mean, think about it for a second. What really drives you? What are the values? Or a third question that I kind of on the same line. What's ultimate in my life? We sang, be thou my vision. That kind of says he's the ultimate. Is he? Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 10, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's kind of a starting point of everything. But where do I go? Where do you go? We forget verses 9 and 10 and we just jump in at verse 11. Real quick, the fourth one is quick, I promise. Fourth gospel truth we need to walk in very simply is this. Grace and the cross are central. Verse 21 in some ways seems abrupt. It just kind of jumps in and grammatically it's not got any connection to what precedes it or what follows it. So it's like Paul's trying to make a concluding statement but we're not quite sure all what he means but hopefully we can understand. It's a Let me read the verse. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay? Scholars struggle a little bit with the beginning of the verse. What exactly is Paul saying? Well, I think this is what he's saying. I think Paul is saying that the only way we can be right with God is through God's grace. Paul says, I'm not going to nullify the grace of God. I'm not going to say it's not needed. We all need it. God's unmerited favor is is required. Every single one of us needed. There is no gospel without the grace of God. At the same time, the only way you and I receive the grace of God, the only way the grace of God became fully possible is through Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And when it says, then Christ died, basically it's referring He died for us in our place instead of us. That is a truth that needs to shape us. He died instead of me. I owe him my life. 
I would not have life if he didn't die. Let me wrap this up. What is the truth of the gospel that you and I are to walk in? What is the truth of the gospel that's to shape our lives? Well, well, part of the truth of the gospel that should shape our lives is that we all need a Savior. Part of the truth of the gospel that should shape our lives is that there is only one Savior, Jesus, and we need to trust Him. Part of the truth of the gospel that should shape our lives is that Jesus gives us radically new lives. And part of the truth of the gospel, the last part would be that grace and the cross are essential. They have to be. We can't have it any other way. The other three things aren't going to be true without grace and the cross. And here's the thing. If we embrace those things, if we've trusted Christ and we walk in those truths, then I honestly believe before God that God is going to work and move in our lives so that you and I become people who love God that you and I are people who trust His Word, we trust the Bible, that we will be people who believe God answers prayer. And we will delight in encouraging other people to follow Jesus. The truth of the gospel. Let us walk in it. The gospel's not distorted when we, when we walk in it. No one's hurt and we're incredibly blessed. Let's pray. Father, you offer us more in the gospel than we ever realize. And I thank you for the incredible privilege this morning of being here to be exposed, reminded, maybe seen it again in a sense for the first time. Here's the gospel. Here's the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray, hearing it, we would trust you. And living, we'd trust you so that we could experience all that you have for us. Thank you for the incredible opportunity to be here. I pray we would not miss the gospel. I pray we'd walk in the truth of it so that we would truly be shaped by it. We live in a competitive world. So many things want to shape us. May we be shaped here. May we be shaped by you and your goodness. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.